because we see imperfectly in mortality. Not everything is going to make sense right now. Lord, I believe. Help thou mine unbelief. Doubt your doubts before you doubt your faith. Whom shall we go? Thou hast the words of eternal life. Welcome back, everyone. This is the To Whom Shall We Go podcast. This is your host, Ryan Sorensen. Today, we are pleased to have Darren Perry joining us. So to get started, Darren, can you tell us a little bit about your story and a little bit about, a little bit about your background and such? Sure. Uh, thanks for having me today. Uh, my name is Darren Perry. I grew up in Davis County, had a pretty privileged life for being a Native American. Uh, my parents, my dad was a school teacher in my early years, and he later became the director of Indian Affairs for the state of Utah uh, much later. And so uh, I grew up around a grandmother, May Timbimbu Perry, that uh, shared my culture. And uh, I attended the University of Utah and Weber State University, and I went into education as well for the last probably 12 years, I've served as on the council for the Northwestern Band of the Shoshone Nation. Much of that time as the chairman of the tribe. I stepped down last year to run for Congress. So it was important for me to just give people a choice, a good choice. And uh, I wasn't successful, thank goodness. And uh, I'm still here doing important work to raise money and awareness for the interpretive center we plan on building at the Bear River Massacre. So uh, I am married, have seven children, 14 grandchildren, and they're all gone out of the house. And it's nice to be a grandparent and uh, have them here for a day or two and then kick them out. So, uh, but I'm at, one thing you need to know, I'm a sixth generation Shoshone Latter-day Saint. And, and that's significant. I mean, a lot of people that have pioneer descendants can barely say that if, if their ancestors came with Brigham Young. So uh, we've been Shoshones, we've been members of the church for a long time, and that's kind of shaped who we are today. That's awesome. Well, we're super happy to have you on, and we're excited to hear more about um, the Bear River Massacre and some of the the stories of your ancestors. Um, and just kind of a little bit of a heads up for our audience. So my big thing with this podcast is I want to help people that are in faith crisis. There's a lot of issues where we might be kind of more, more on the defensive at times, but sometimes there's issues and it's just kind of the reality is this happened and we need to deal with it. And while we're doing that, like we, we can put it in context, but the reality is like mistakes have been made in the church in the past and that doesn't necessarily mean the gospel isn't true, but with this interview, I'm hoping that we can kind of inoculate um, ourselves to some of these issues, as well as learn from some beautiful stories of reconciliation and some really amazing Shoshone Latter-day Saints as well. Um, so kind of to get into that, can you tell us a little bit about how you first got interested in like digging deeper into the Bear River Massacre and then kind of open up about kind of the context behind um, what was going on in that time period and kind of just go right into giving us the spiel on that? Yeah, I, I would love to. Uh, I was very blessed because both my parents worked when I was young. And, and what that did is it gave me the opportunity to uh, get dropped off at my grandmother's house every day. She would babysit me. And so um, I, it's fortunate because that's the way she learned. She learned as a young child at the feet of her grandparents. That's the way uh, Native American cultures disseminate knowledge to the children. Uh, winter was always the elders' time to tell stories. And that's when the children learned concepts and values, but always with animals and plants. And so, uh, I was lucky enough to sit at the feet of my grandmother, May Timbimbu Perry. Uh, she would tell me stories about how the coyotes stole fire, how the porcupine became greedy, 
uh, all these things that that taught knowledge and a value and she would repeat them over and over again because in our culture nothing was ever written down and so i went through this process with her but because of that process i developed a really uh great love for stories and history and and you know and then i go to school and that quickly dawned on me that none of the stories that my grandmother was telling me as a Shoshone tribal elder were in our history books. And so uh, early on, I learned that uh, that perspective, the Shoshone perspective was never heard by most people. And so I was very blessed and lucky enough to hear not only what's in our history books today, but uh, really the perspective of a people that's never had a voice. And so a marginalized group and uh, it gave me a, a, I just think it prepared me a little better uh, early on that sometimes um, the perspective that we hear and celebrate and even in the church can be uh, one-sided sometimes. And, and how looking at things from a different way can actually bring us knowledge and peace and comfort and it allows us to uh, really get to the bottom of things and reconcile things in the end and so i'm learning all these principles as a young child just and then going to school and not hearing them in our history books and uh, there was a quote that winston churchill said that uh history is always written by the victors and you know i i didn't hear that quote until i was probably a sophomore in high school but it was an aha moment for me because I thought, okay, that makes perfect sense why the stories my grandmother told me are not in her history books. And so, you know, she would tell me about that, but always at the end of the storytelling, if I wasn't tired, if I was tired, she would quit because it was important for her that I stayed alert, that I learned it. And so I could disseminate that to my children and grandchildren down the road. But uh, she would talk to me about the story of the Bear River Massacre. Now, our people were indigenous to Northern Utah, uh, especially the Cache Valley was always home base, but that's where we resided. And we were hunters and gatherers. We traveled with the changing seasons. We looked upon the earth as not just a place to live, but something so sacred and special that we called our mother. Uh, to Native people, the land is everything. We're not superior in any way. We're equals with our animal kinfolk, as my grandmother would call them, and the plants and things. So Native Americans had no concept of personal property. And so when a family was in need or uh, starving or any other thing, the whole community would rally together. My grandmother often told me that uh, our community is only as strong as the most vulnerable in our community. So that way of looking at things as not possessive and, and just a way of life was, was what I was taught. Sounds kind of like Zion in a lot of ways. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. And, and living that kind of life, but uh, it conflicted with the life I was living. You know, I lived in a home with a mom and dad and, we had our personal cars, we had our property and our homes. And so, you know, those early days, our people lived that way. But in 1847, you know, Brigham Young and the first group of saints uh, come to the valley. And uh, Sagwich, our chief, who happened to be my third great grandfather, so I'm a direct descendant, he went down to Salt Lake City on July 31st. So, you know, six or seven days after the saints had arrived to meet with Brigham Young to find out what the intentions were. And he didn't get to meet with Brigham Young. He met with a guy named Heber C. Kimball that we all know in the church. And at the end of that meeting, Heber C. Kimball told Sagwich that, uh, that the Shoshones didn't own the land. The land belonged to the Lord and the saints calculated to plow and plant it. And so uh, I'm not sure what went through Sagwich's mind you know, he'd, he'd known white people, the trappers and mountain men had been there for, you know, 30, 40 years or before that. So, 
uh, he'd known them, but they'd always left after they traded. And, but I think he knew that this was a group of people. It was going to be different, that their lives were going to change a little bit. And so, you know what, if, if Brigham Young and that first group of pioneers, if that would have been it, uh, they would, this would still be Shoshone land. But years and years and years, more saints would come by the hundreds and thousands. And that really put, uh, 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 they struggled with the resources. The saints were hunting the deer, same deer, elk and buffalo. They were harvesting the fish. Uh, but not only that, they were bringing their cattle. They were putting up fences. They were marking their territory as this is ours now. And in each family staked out a plot or a claim. And with that, the fences and cattle. And so now instead of having seeds and, and wild grass, uh, the cattle needed it. Uh, you now have fences and cattle. And so it put a big, uh, dent into the resources that the Shoshone people needed. You know, that was their only way of life is hunting and gathering. And, and it was brutally hard. My grandmother told me that they would sometimes pick seeds and berries all day long, the women would for one meal for their family. And if they were lucky enough to harv a deer, harvest a deer with homemade bows and arrows, I, I can't imagine how hard it is. Uh, then they would have meat. But for the most part, you know, they were on the brink of starvation most of the time. So if you get saints that just change the, the landscape a little bit, uh, now you have uh, Native Americans that are starving. My people are starving. And, and I think they have three options. Beg for food, which we know they did from the journals of the pioneers. The Indians would come knocking at their doors and, and asking for food. Starve or steal. And, and I'm sure I did all three. The funny thing is my grandmother told me that, uh, Darren, we never stole anything. We were always collecting rent. And, and I just smiled every time. She never smiled, but I always smile when I say that because when you have no concept of personal property and a family is in need and a pioneer family has three cows out in his pasture, uh, it, they don't even think twice about what they're going to do. Uh, because that's the way their community lived. You, you took care of one another if there was a need. And so, but to the saints, it wasn't that way. It was, you're stealing my property. And, and you know, it's just two different people living two different lifestyles. And so uh, you can fault them. Uh, the Shoshones uh, saying they were stealing. You could fault the saints for not, uh, living the law of consecration, the way the Shoshones had always lived their life, you know, you, you sacrificed everything for the good of the community. So, uh, yeah, it just put a really, uh, a lot of hardships on both groups. And so in the end, something was about to give, and that something was uh, what we call the Bear River Massacre today. You know, the saints, uh, I sat down with the church historian uh, about a year ago, uh, before they changed it was elder snow and and i was telling him about this history and he was aware of a little bit of it but he kind of got defensive at the end and said well we didn't kill anybody and i said you're right you didn't kill anybody the saints didn't kill anybody uh, as far as the massacre goes but they were absolutely the cause and, and just by that i mean you know their presence in the cache valley their depletion of the resources uh, at least they knew how to farm and ranch and grow crops. Uh, we didn't know that. So we had none of those, that skill set. And so when the de resources be became depleted, they had that to fall back on. Uh, we didn't know any of that. And so uh, we were left to really uh, beg for food or starve or steal. And so, uh, you know, I just el reminded Elder Snow that the presence in the Cache Valley, if they would have stayed out of the Cache Valley, you know, they would have been fine because the resources that are here, and I live in Logan today, uh, the resources, it's a beautiful mountain valley that has everything, waters, you know, grasses, and wild berries that are still in the mountains behind me. And so, and deer and elk and game that have come back now, but that wasn't the case then. They completely pretty much wiped out everything that was here. 
And then that's what led to the Bear River Massacre. And uh, a lot of people, you know, I, I live here in Logan today and I speak a lot and I do some firesides for the church and I talk about the massacre quite a bit. And a, a lot of people come up to me and say, we've lived here our whole lives and really haven't heard anything about it. And so uh, I'm happy to, you know, share what that was about and why it came about and and the things that we've learned from it. But uh, just briefly, as far as the massacre goes, you know, uh, the saints that lived here in Cache Valley began writing letters to Salt Lake City saying, we've got a problem with the, the Native Americans, the Indians, somebody's got to come take care of the problem. And and it was, I'm sure it was hard for them. I, you know, if, if you have a cow and you live out in the middle of nowhere here in this valley and the next rancher or farmer is a half a mile away, you've got a young family, you're struggling to make ends meet anyway. And so, you know, if, a, if the Shoshones come in and beg for food and you give them some of yours, or if they steal a cow or, or butcher a cow out in your field, that has consequences for your family and your ability to take care of them. So while I, I'm sympathetic to both sides and I can completely understand the, the saints didn't live the way the Shoshones have lived as far as consecrating everything to the good of the community. So, yeah, I think it's one of those issues where it, it's really important to like, not have black and white thinking with this issue because both sides they have their own perspectives and i think a lot of the faults on both sides were out of ignorance to a certain degree obviously there were mistakes that were made but like i think a lot of it was because of ignorance yeah and the mistakes that were made are we can say that today because we have the the wonderful thing of knowing and being able to look back at the past but when you're living in it and that's all you know, you know, I'm not going to judge the saints on how they felt back in 158 years ago. Yeah. You know, it, it was the wild, wild west. And and we even had a president of the United States, Andrew Jackson, that put a bounty on Native Americans' heads. You know, it was you, he'd pay you fifty dollars if you killed a Native American. So the fact that Native Americans were less than human in the eyes of a lot of people and savages and, you know, that's not lost on me at all. Uh, you would hope, you know, as, as a Latter-day Saint today, you would hope that just your moral compass and uh, what you've been taught scripturally and what you believe in as doctrine, you would think that would have a little more play into some of the decisions that were made yeah still at the end of the day uh i'm not going to fault you know people that that lived that long ago we have the luxury of making some of the claims we do today because we know more and, and we live it a little different way right i mean yeah a quick question i have is so like the kind of the conflict that was happening in cash valley was that more than it was happening in other places in Utah among the saints? No, and you know what? That's a great point. Uh, I'm talking about the Cache Valley because that's specific to me and my tribe. Yeah. Shoshones. You have the same conflict in Utah County. Okay. Uh, with the Utes and the Timpanogos Band and the other bands. I mean, a lot of the policies that Brigham Young uh prescribed to, especially here in the Cache Valley, he'd already tried in Utah County. The yeah. Saints had moved into that Springville area and, and Provo and Orem area. And, and there was a huge population of Utes. And so, and then down, you know, in Manti, that area, when the Saints went to a new area to colonize it, there were Native Americans there. So this this back and forth, this tension, I guess you could say, was with wherever the saints went, uh, that tension seemed to exist. And so, you know, I just talk about it here because I'm here. And yeah. Here in the Bear River Massacre was here. But don't don't think for a minute that it wasn't happening everywhere in the state that the saints were branching out to and starting their colonies. Okay, that's good to know. 
So there's so there's this conflict happening in Cache Valley, Utah. And then are they like reaching out to like church headquarters, kind of telling them we need some help type deal or what happens from there? Yes, the local saints were writing these letters to church headquarters for the most part. And uh, and I don't blame them at all. I mean, I, I can understand why. And Brigham Young, you know, I, I say Brigham Young and, and a lot of people think Brigham Young preached and he did from the pulpit a lot. It's easier to feed them than to fight them. So that was kind of his mantra all for years and years. It's easier to feed the Native Americans than to fight them. He only came up with that though after that he'd really tried to exterminate the Utes out of Utah County through uh, war and, and just you know chasing the natives out of there and, and killing those that were there. And it wasn't very successful that they had a lot of pushback from the youths. So I think after that, he kind of adopted the policy that we know today. It's easier to feed them than to fight them and to make friends with them. And, and he's, so he starts sending out missionary groups to not only convert the Shoshones, but as some of the young men, he said to marry their daughters, marry the, the Native American daughters, because once that union happened, then you have peace. I mean, if you look at it that way. And so that was part of the process too. And so uh, Brigham Young, you know, after the initial, you know, we need to get the Utes out of Utah County, uh, started the other policy and, and he preached that to the end of his days, which was actually better. So, and that was in the early 1850s. So by the time we got here and in, in Peter Mon got here in 55, Peter Mon called Sagwich and his people the friendly ones, which kind of tells me that there were probably other groups in here that were not as friendly. Bear Hunters group wasn't friendly to the saints and neither was Chief Pocatello. And so uh, you have that tension now, but to the saints, they don't know who's, who's part of what, but all Native Americans look the same to them. And so you, you have friendly ones, but if you have ones that are not as friendly, you, you don't know the difference. And so, uh, you know, those tensions just began to build and build and build. Those letters went to Brigham Young and said, look, we're having a hard time with our, our own selves. We know you say you want us to feed them, but I can't feed my own family three square meals a day. And, and we just can't do this. And, and then there were a couple of immigrants that were using the California and Oregon trails and they cut through the heart of this land there was a, an immigrant, uh, a miner that was on his way to the gold mines in Montana. Uh, so the miners had built a road from the California and Oregon Trail by Soda Springs, but it cut down through Cache Valley and into Salt Lake. And a lot of times the miners would go to Salt Lake to get supplies before heading back north. So it cut right through the Cache Valley and a couple of miners were attacked and killed in early of uh, 62. And so a lot of people say what caused the Bear River Massacre? Well, depredations and other things, but there were a couple of just little incidents that kind of tipped it over. And that would have been one of them. The surviving miners uh, had made it to Salt Lake and they went to a judge, a federal judge in Salt Lake, just said, hey, we were attacked by some renegade Indians and and something's got to happen because this is a trail that the pioneers use, that the gold miners use. And so the federal judge issued arrest warrants for the chiefs only, Chief Barrenter, Chief Sagwich, Chief Pocatello. And so that's all he did. He didn't say, hey, go up there and kill everybody. He just said, go arrest the chiefs and bring them in and let's get to the bottom of what's going on. Maybe the chiefs can, can quiet you know, the tension between everybody. But uh, at the end of the day, that's not what happened. So from there, like, um, was it like the saints that went there? Or is it like, who who are those that like were sent to go arrest these, these chiefs? Yeah, so, it, you know, I don't think anybody in Salt Lake, and I don't think the saints wanted that job. And so, <laughs> Those, those arrest warrants found their way up to the only law enforcement really arm that was in town. And that would have been at Camp Douglas, Utah. 
and and Camp Douglas is an interesting thing because <laughs> Camp Douglas was founded and established as a fort by Colonel Patrick Edward Connor. And just as a little background on Connor, he he immigrated as a young teenager to the United States from Ireland, joined the army once he got to the United States. And so he'd served in the US Army his whole life, uh, spent a lot of time in Texas. Later years, he found himself in California. And then the Civil War breaks out. So he's an army guy through and through. He wants to make a name for himself in the Civil War. So he uh, starts a, a cavalry in California and petitions the government to let them come fight in the Civil War. And so him and his men all signed up in California, head out of California on their way to, to fight in the Civil War for the Union. Halfway across Nevada, they get new orders. The Mormons might succeed from the Union. You know, we're having a hard time keeping the telegraph uh, from being cut down and destroyed. And the Overland Mail Route cut through that area as well. And that is sometimes being attacked by Indians. And so instead of coming to help in the Civil War, we want you to go to Salt Lake City to really babysit the Latter-day Saints. Uh, the government wasn't trusting of the, the Saints, thought they might join Mexico or some other groups. And so he his task is to go to Salt Lake. He built a fort. He aimed his cannons out over the valley because he established it up where the University of Utah is at today, up on the hill. And there and his men find themselves for two years. The, the Latter-day Saints weren't causing trouble. <laughs> they're, you know, in Salt Lake, they're, they're not the problem. And so instead of really making a name for themselves, they're stuck in Salt Lake uh, wanting to fight. And then you start getting letters from the Saints and the rumors are getting out that, because most of the letters were written to Brigham Young, but rumors were starting to fly that, there was an Indian problem in Salt Lake. And then when the federal, in, in Cache Valley, and then when the federal judge contacted Connor and said, hey, we want you to go north and arrest these chiefs because of the problems that are existing up there. It became an easy thing for him to do. Uh, he looked at it as a way that his uh, men are going to get to do what they always wanted to do and fight. And uh, a year or two earlier, Connor had established uh, an alternate to the Deseret News. So he established a, a Gentile newspaper in Salt Lake. I think it was the Salt Lake Gazette. Uh, it's now the Salt Lake Tribune. And it was supposed to be completely opposite of what you would get if you were to read the paper the Saints came up with. So he hated the, the LDS people. And Brigham Young didn't like him either. And so there was that. And then, so he, he does an interview in, this, in his own paper. And he just said that, uh, I'm going to go north, but I'm not going to arrest anyone. I'm not going to deprive my men a little fun of Indian killing. And, uh, and then he said something that was repeated at Hans Mill that nits make lice. It was his intention to kill every young Native American child so it wouldn't have a chance to grow to adulthood. And so, you know, he knew exactly what he planned on doing. And, and then the troops left Camp Douglas with those arrest warrants, knowing full well that they had no intentions of arresting anyone uh, on, on the 27th of January in 1863. And over the course of two nights, they stayed in Brigham City one night. They traveled at night, which had to have been brutally cold on his men. And we know that because a lot of soldiers were frozen and frostbitten even before they got to the massacre site. But they stayed in Brigham City one night, stayed in Wellsville a night, and then they made their way towards where the Shoshone encampment was, which today is just two miles north of Preston, Idaho. So it's 11 miles over the Utah border, but there were no borders then. It was the Washington territories, you know, Utah staked claim. Utah even had a, a community that had been established in 1860. They called it Franklin. Franklin is just in Idaho today when they drew that boundary in 1871. So, but it was a Mormon community. 
and that uh, was established in 1860, three years before the massacre. And but that would have been the closest uh, LDS community to where the Shoshones always wintered. And then on the January 29th in 1863, Connor and his men got to the site and uh, Sagwich being an early riser, got up as usual on that morning. He surveyed the area and he's noticed a cloud on the bluff to the Southeast. The Shoshone encampment is down by the river and there's a bluff. It's down in the bottom of a huge, just, you know, miles long ravine. And, and it's, it's below, way below the elevation of the normal landscape. And so Sagwich uh, noticed a cloud on the, the edge of the horizon and he didn't really realize what it was. And, and then it started to move down the hill and then he, it dawned on him that it was the troops from Camp Douglas. He actually knew that they were coming. This, this, there was a good friend of Sagwich's that lived in Franklin. He owned a grocery store and he had, he had befriended Sagwich and he came to the camp the day earlier and said, some of the saints and, and the miners have made requests uh, to the army to come take care of the Indian problem and they're on their way, they're coming here. And so Sagwich knew they were coming. He saw this mist and it started moving down the hill. And what he actually saw was this, the horses. There were 250 cavalry. The saints said in their journals, there was four feet of snow they were lathered up. They'd been traveling all night long. The horses were sweaty in zero degree temperature. And the steam that was coming off the horses and the, every time the horse would breathe, the breath created this just huge cloud. And, uh, but it started moving down the bluff and Sagwich realized what was taking place, that the troops from Camp Douglas had arrived. And so he woke everyone up, told them to get ready. He'd hoped though that he was going to be able to talk to them. And because he'd met the military on numerous occasions before. And he said, we've always been able to negotiate a peaceful settlement. And I think perhaps he thought that that was going to happen again and it didn't. Uh, the troops came down the bluff, crossed the river and uh, started firing their rifles and sidearms at the, at the Shoshone encampment. And so we believe at the end of that uh, fighting, uh, we believe more than 400 Shoshones, men, women, and children died uh, that day. We know that because uh, Brigham Young sent three men from Franklin there the next day to count and to look for survivors. And two of the gentlemen counted over 400, one counted 461, one counted 489 dead. But they said it was really it was brutally hard to count because there were eight deep bodies deep in some places and three to five deep in other places in the ravines. So, but they did their best. We believe it's north of 400 because we know how many lodges were there and how many usually lived in a lodge. And so if that's accurate, it's the largest massacre of Native Americans by the US Army in the history of the United States. You know, we have, we have national monuments at uh, all these monuments at, at Washita and Sand Creek and Wounded Knee. And, and in those instances, you know, maybe 120 Native Americans died in, in all total. So, and it's not, it's not the amount of loss of life because even one loss of life is, is horrific. But when you think about it and you think about a story that's never been told in more than 400 and sometimes, you know, you can make a claim that the saints had a hand in it uh, while they didn't fire a bullet, their presence here kind of pushed it to where it went. Uh, then you start to just wonder why, why don't we know and why hasn't it been told? And, and so, you know, I've worked, a, my grandmother was our uh, historian in our tribe she went to boarding school and had, you know, she had a pretty good experience in boarding school compared to other Native Americans. She, but she used that time to get educated. And then she continued her education after that. And she got her English degree. 
And then she did something that literally changed our tribe's trajectory and way of life. She began writing down all of those oral stories that she'd been told. And, and she wrote the story of the Barabur massacre. She went to the massacre site often with her grandfather and her grandfather was the son of Chief Sagwich. He was 12 during the massacre. And the only reason he survived is he played dead for four hours on that killing field. And so he would take my grandmother to the site and say, this is where I played dead. This is where all the lodges were. This is where the army attacked. So we have firsthand knowledge because, you know, my grandmother wrote it down as she'd heard it from her grandfather who was there as a 12 year old. And so we're just grateful that we have that knowledge today of, of you know, what took place and, and the firsthand account of the Shoshone perspective, because otherwise we wouldn't have had it. But um, she worked her whole life to tell the story. And she would always tell me, she said, Darren, no one has ever wanted to hear our story before. One day you will have to make them listen. But, you know, I, I not, I speak a lot about this in, in different settings, in firesides, at universities. But I think we're living in a time today that I haven't had to make anybody listen. I think people want to know. And they want to know about their past. And they want to know about hard things. And so we all go through hard things. So, you know, the fact that our tribe went through hard things 159 years ago um, is just another, I, I just look at it as a way to, to learn and uh, become better, so. Yeah, definitely. Um, so like with this, like this battle happens and like Sagwitch, how does he manage to survive? I would think that like, the main reason they were there was to get him and how did he manage to survive? Yeah, they were there after him. They really wanted to make sure they got the chiefs. And even there's a monument at, at the site today that was erected by the Daughters of Utah Pioneers. On the monument, it said Chief Sagwitch was killed because Connor thought he'd killed, they'd killed him, but they didn't. They actually killed Chief Bear Hunter, though. He was the only chief okay. that died that day. They tortured him in unspeakable ways and ended up killing him. But Sagwitch was wounded and he escaped by riding a horse across the Bear River and uh, after receiving a bullet wound to his hand. So, you know, he uh, was lucky enough to survive and, and some of his children survived too. His, he had three boys that survived the massacre. His wife wasn't so lucky. He had an infant daughter that was found at the massacre site that next to its mother who was dead. And uh, Sagwitch went back later that night and told the people that were with him to put that little girl that was alive in a cradle board and hang her in a nearby tree. <laughs> and you think that's pretty brutal, especially in January, but he knew that he had no way of taking care of that child uh, because it, you know it needed nourishment from its mother and there was nobody there that could take care of that. So. Uh, he hung her in a tree, hoping that a pioneer family would pick her up. And really, that's what happened. She was picked up the next day and raised by a family in Franklin. And she was known by the name of Jane Hull. And she lived a long, prosperous life, uh, was married, and she's actually buried in the Ogden, Utah area. She lived to be more than 90 years old. And so... Uh, Sagwitch, because he survived and many of his descendants did, were here to tell the story uh, of, you know, what happened to his people. But, you know, that's not the end of the story for Sagwitch. You know, he stayed in the area, which is really speaks volumes for the relationship he had with the saints here. Uh, he had no problems with them. In fact, he worked for them off and on uh, after the massacre. He stayed here. He didn't leave. And, and I, I don't think he really blamed the saints all that much um, because he wouldn't have been able to stay here if he did. But he, he continued for the next few years to work breaking horses, tending cattle, doing all he could. The saints, for the most part, were his friends here in the Cache Valley. And, uh, and so many of the survivors continued to stay here. They lived in Brigham City also that were working for ranchers. And so 
and, and then something that happened that literally changed the trajectory for our tribe from that point on. Sagwich has a dream 10 years later in 1873. And uh, in his dream, three men appear to him in his dream and tell him of a God among the Mormon people. And they needed to quit their roaming ways and they needed to send for missionaries who would teach them what to do. And, you know, from that time on, Sagwich, Sagwich knew of a man that lived in Ogden named George Washington Hill. They knew of him because he spoke Shoshone fluently. And they knew he'd been a missionary before. Uh, Brigham Young sent George Washington Hill to the Lemhi Shoshone, uh, um, Sacagawea's people in central Idaho in 1855. And it was actually a very successful mission. They baptized more than 500 Shoshone. They called them Lemhi Shoshones. Lemhi is a Book of Mormon term. You would never find that outside the church. But uh, he converted them and then the church closed the mission because a Native American killed a, a missionary. And so they, they abandoned that mission. George moved back to Ogden, had a family, worked for the Union Pacific Railroad, and uh, now is just uh, not a missionary anymore, but lived in Ogden, but the Shoshones knew of him. So Sagwich goes to his house and says, the great spirit is sending us spiritual manifestations and we need to learn about your church. And uh, George tells him that he's no longer a missionary, that there's order in the Lord's church and that he needs to go to Salt Lake and they'll send somebody. Well, George, he does that three days in a row. <laughs> and George tells him the same thing. And uh, finally, on the, after that third day, he gets a call from Brigham Young saying, George does, come to my office. And when he walks in Brigham Young's office, he says to George, I've had a heavy burden on my shoulders and that burden is now going to be yours. Uh, I'm going to, you're going to now be a missionary to the Shoshones in North Country. Well, the North Country was here in Logan and the Korean area. And so that's where you could have found the Shoshones that day. And so uh, long story short, uh, George, when he returned home that day, sitting on his front porch was Sagwich again the, for the fourth day. And, and he told him, he said, Chief, our, the Great Spirit has told our leader to send me to you. So I am now going to be a missionary and I'm going to come teach you the gospel, but I can't come today or tomorrow or even next week. I've got a family, a farm to try to get somebody to take care of. And I've got a job at the Union Pacific. I've got to put my things in order. It might be a month or two down the road before I come. And so that's kind of what happened. Sagwich leaves. George goes to work that night at the Union Pacific. There was a train derailment in Weber Canyon. He doesn't have any work, so he jumps on a freight train that goes to Corinne. He walks from Corinne to find the Shoshone village. And uh, on his way, he runs into uh, a man. He sees in the distance a man riding a horse, leading a horse. And as he gets closer to him, he realized it was Sagwich. And when he got to Sagwich, Sagwich said, I, I'm here to pick you up. I thought you'd be tired from your journey. And uh, George told him that he said, hey, I told you I wasn't coming for a while. And uh, Sagwich said, well, I had another dream last night and the great spirit said you were coming today. So I'm here to pick you up. Took him back to camp. They taught him the gospel. And, you know, a couple hours later, George baptizes 100 and one Shoshone's in the Bear River. The same Bear River that Sagwich had seen almost the entire, you know, uh, killing of all of his people, you know, 10 years earlier. So that incident and the Bear River Massacre and then their conversion to the LES Church and what Sagwich must have gone through. You know, I, I don't know if I could have made those same decisions. I would have probably blamed the saints. <laughs> For, for what had happened. And now he finds himself 10 years later joining the same church. And so how he reconciled that in his own mind. I can't wait to talk to him one day. 
to find out, you know, what was he thinking and, and why. But, uh, you know, from that point on, they were faithful, faithful saints like the children of Ammon were. And just, just, George said they had a childlike faith that he'd never seen before in all of his years of doing missionary work. And so that kind of changed who we are as a people. Wow. That's an amazing story. And I imagine that, yeah, it's going to be an awesome day when you're able to, to meet with him and hear more about his stories. And yeah, that's just really amazing. Um, so one of the next things I wanted to kind of just discuss is like, so how, how can we honor the stories of these people? You know, uh, I've always looked at it as, as uh, the best way to honor those is to, to really recognize what happened and sometimes take responsibility for it. And, and, but once you acknowledge something, you know, look, we all go through hard times in our lives. And if you haven't yet, you have not lived long enough, but aren't we all going through trials and struggles and, you know, we're taught, they're given to us so we can learn and grow. And so uh, the, the thing that is just striking to me is this was a horrific event. And, and I believe it was caused by the presence of the, the Mormon pioneers that were there. But for me, it's always about acknowledging the past, looking at it as, as something that was horrific. We can't change it but how can we move forward from it and, and make it better? Because I, I think we're all in agreement that dwelling on past negative hardships doesn't do any of us any good at all. And it only brings more heartache and more hurt and more mental illnesses and other things. So to me, I, I reconcile it because I can say, you know, that was a horrific time for them, but what can we do to honor them and their memory? And how can we move forward together to make this a better place today? And, and to me, that's always the story because I look at it just like any other hardship that some people and friends of mine are going through today. You can let it define you by how you react to it. And so for me and, and Sagwitch, it's, it's always better. I, I think I'm wired more like him that you look at a hard thing that happened in the past, acknowledge it, say you're sorry for it, you know, make restitution when you can. And if you can't, uh, certainly um, by apologizing and you allow healing to take place. And by that, you allow a group of people like the Shoshones to forgive, you know, who they thought wronged them. And so, Without that acknowledgement, though, and without that asking for forgiveness, you really can't get there because, you know, we can always forgive, but it certainly is a much better process when both groups try to try to make it right. And sometimes you can't make it right, but you can make it right by acknowledging what had happened, taking responsibility for it, and then moving on past it because that's the story to me is, you know, the Bear Massacre doesn't define our people today. Only the hard work of the people, the survivors, the descendants and how we live our lives today. That's the story for me is we're resilient and we've come through something really hard. We didn't per se, but our ancestors did. But uh, we're much better off today because we've moved past it, we've forgiven. But when you forgive, it doesn't mean you need to forget. And it doesn't mean you need to not protect yourselves from things happening again. And so, but, you know, I've lived a long time and I always know that I'm still going to have other hardships in my life. But certainly being able to look at this and, and understanding it and then moving past it. I have people ask me all the time, how can you stay in the church uh, when the church was pretty much responsible for what happened. And, and to me, it's just an easy thing. Uh, 
the church is made up of of men and women who are mortal who aren't perfect they're trying their very hardest every day to make good decisions and do the best they know how and so to me i i look at it that way i think the gospel of jesus christ and what he taught is absolutely perfection and true those principles that we know but I think our Heavenly Father probably gets frustrated sometimes that he has imperfect people here on this earth to to run things for him in, in his absence. And so uh, for me, it's always easy to look at it that way. The gospel is true, but, you know, we have imperfect people to that have made decisions over a lifetime, some good, some not good, but it doesn't take away the fact that what we know is right. And so uh, mistakes are always going to be made by church leaders. And if your faith and your testimony is in the leader itself or a man in, that are running it, then the, oh, it's always going to be problematic because you're always going to be able to look at them and make a judgment on, well, that's not right or that's not how you would have done it. And, and so it's always going to reflect negatively. So uh, the fact that I can kind of separate it and say, you know, I don't think our Heavenly Father wanted the massacre to happen. I don't believe that, you know, it was destiny that that happened. I think people have a, a choice and, and we've been blessed with the ability to be able to make decisions and we're going to pay consequences for some of those decisions. I think we could have worked out a way to live together, but, you know, it's it's an interesting thing because the saints felt like, They've been persecuted religiously uh, back east and their trek across this country. They didn't have it easy. They were prosecuted all the time. And so I can understand completely how they felt. But then really to have them get here and, and kind of do the same thing to our people, I think they felt that it was their destiny to be here. God told them they needed to be here. Brigham Young said, this is the place. This is where we are coming. Well, he came to a place that already had people here. And so, you know, I just look at it as decisions were made and, and sometimes always not for the best, but we can't change any of that, can we? All we can do is move forward. And it's that moving forward by forgiving and reconciling and, and making sure we learn about it so we don't repeat it. Those are the lessons I think come out of all of it. Yeah, I think I think those are some great some great observations and and yeah, just kind of the realization we can't control what happened in the past, but we can learn from it and we can allow Jesus Christ to to heal. Um I really appreciate your thoughts. I think you've you've had so many awesome things on in closing, I guess I guess I'll just ask two more questions. Um, one, if someone wants to learn more about this, what's a good resource they could go to? And and yeah, well, uh, thanks for asking that because you know there's some really good resources out there. People have written about it. Brigham Madsen was a historian with the University of Utah. He was the first to write about the massacre. Scott Christensen is an archivist for the LDS Church. He wrote a book called Sagwich, Shoshone Chief and Mormon Elder. And then I wrote a book uh, about a year and a half ago called The Bear River Massacre, a Shoshone History. And in my book, I talk about, it, it's only $10 on Amazon. You can get it at Deseret Book. Uh, but I just kind of chronicle who the Shoshone people were before the saints arrived our lifestyle, how we lived. Uh, there's another chapter. My first chapter is on my grandmother and that relationship that we had and oral history storytelling and things. But I talk about the coming of the saints, what the, how that kind of changed our way of life a little bit. I talk about Chief Sagwich and, and what kind of man he was. I talk about Patrick Connor and, and who he was in all of this. And then I talk about the massacre. There's a chapter on the Bear River Massacre, which I go into much more detail. And then um, after the massacre, our conversion, 
And then what happened after the conversion? The church established a farm. We're one of the only tribes that didn't get reservation land. So the church established a farm. We called it Washakie. Our people lived there from 18, 1878 to 1960. Uh, so thousands of Shoshones were blessed to learn. We assimilated into the culture. Uh, they built a church house, a school, the church did, called missionary families that taught us to farm, plant crops, raise cattle, sheep, other things. And so that's I, that I talk about that. So I give the whole perspective of the massacre, the conversion to our church, what that means. And then I devote the last chapter on who we are today and, and what those, some of those outcomes of those horrific things, how that shaped who we are today and what our people believe in and what we do. And so uh, I think it's a really balanced way of looking at the whole process of what our people have gone through. And, and I've had a lot of people tell me by far, that's the most, it's the first time they've heard the Shoshone perspective because every book they've ever heard and has been written about the topic has been written from a white person and, a, and that perspective. And so this was the only book that I know of comes from the perspective of the Northwestern Shoshone. And so it, it's inexpensive. It's an easy, easy read, but I just tell it like I heard it from my grandmother more in a storytelling sense. Yeah. So there's, there's stuff out there that you can really learn. And uh, Google does a great job of sharing other resources and some of the talks I give, some of the church talks and some of the academic talks, that there's a lot of information out there for people. That sounds really good. That's really good to know. And I, I think you've mentioned on, are, are you currently in like the process of like getting a new monument? made that kind of better shares the story yes in fact uh in 2018 we were able to purchase all of the bear river massacre site more than 550 acres so that's the first time we'd ever owned the land none of the bodies were buried those bodies are just beneath the surface so that was sacred land because we had a no reservation we weren't landowners so in 2018 we raised two million dollars and we bought all of the land and I didn't want to quit there. I wanted to make sure we could tell the story. And so I've been raising additional money to build a beautiful interpretive center on the site. So it'll be an 8,000 square foot building that'll have be a, a center of learning, tell people what happened that day, show them native plants. We're going to restore the landscape to what it looked like in 1863 with native plants as food and medicine and with walking trails and you can walk down to the hot springs. And so we've been developing our plans to do that. It's called boaogai.org. You can get online and look at that. It's B-O-A-O-G-O-I.org. And uh, it shows what the plans will be and what it looks like and what are, we're going to do in the future. But uh, yeah, we're gonna be able here in the next couple of years to really tell our story from our perspective from the site itself and uh it'll give a perspective that's never been heard before i love that and i'll make sure to i'll put a link in the description so if any of our viewers would want to donate to support that i think that'd be a really great thing and i'm personally from logan um so any of my logan listeners if you're listening like that'd be a very easy thing and i'm sure that'd be a really great experience to check that out when when that's able to be put together um and then in closing, I'm just going to end with just one more question. You've already kind of talked a little bit about this, but I want to close with just asking, what does the gospel of Jesus Christ mean to you, Darren? Well, it, it means everything because, uh, you know, if you believe in the gospel, then you believe in all of it. You believe we lived here before we came. We believe we, we learned about we're going to go down and experience things, some great, some not so good but all things will be for our learning. And so, you know, this is just part of the process. You know, I, I survived cancer two years ago and, and do I wish that, I'm not glad I had it, but man, it gave me a different perspective than, than I would have had if I'd not had it. And so, you know, I think we're here to just learn. And so the gospel has given me a pers 
an eternal perspective on things that uh, if you look at the big picture, it's, it's easier to stay focused on what the goal is and make decisions in our life that will uh, better reflect that. If you have a perspective on, you know, where you've been uh, in the pre-earth life and where we're going, what, what is possible. And knowing all along here, we're going to have bumps and bruises and ups and downs and all kinds of things, some more than others. Some go through, through way more horrific things than I have with even cancer. And so just knowing, though, what the end goal is and knowing that this is a journey we're on and we need to learn from it and be better after we learn from it, that's, that's the, really the key for me. And that's what keeps me focused on the end game, the, the goal at the end even though sometimes we're always gonna, you know, have hard things in our life, but uh, those hard things shouldn't define us. We should just learn from it, move on and, and see how we can be better together as a community. The gospel of Jesus Christ is about loving our neighbors and, and loving those people around us. Whether they believe in a different political system or anything else, it doesn't matter. That wasn't one of the things, you know, he didn't say love your neighbor, but only if he's the same political party you are or anything like that. It's just love your neighbor. And I hope we can get there. I hope this world that we seems to be a little more divided than usual. I hope we can just put aside our differences and, and really live the pure gospel of Jesus Christ the way it was intended. And so I'm very grateful that for that perspective and the things that I've gone through. Definitely. Well, thanks so much for being on, Darren. Really appreciate you. Oh, my pleasure. And I, I do it anytime. So thank you for having me. This has been the To Whom Shall We Go podcast. We'll see you next time.